0: Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online. Also, all of you here uh, at Central Campus. So good to be together. Amen? Amen. Boy. Can't tell you how much that encourages me and the rest of our staff just to, you know, to see. Many of you say it, you know, uh, it's an encouragement Uh, to see us, but you have no idea what encouragement is to reconnect with you as well. But we do welcome you here at Central Campus, along with those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, in Bearspaw, and also in South Calgary. Some time ago, a young man came up to me after a service, and he said, Pastor, do you believe that God is able to change human nature? Is it possible for immoral people to be given self-control, cruel people to be made kind, and selfish people to become generous? I said, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if that weren't true. And if I didn't believe that. He then proceeded to ask, well, if that's true, then why doesn't it work for me? I try to change. I even ask God for help at times, but it just doesn't seem to work. Well perhaps you're struggling with the same issue in your life and I just want to say the Apostle Paul addresses this issue on how we can find freedom, true freedom within us, and to live in victory through Jesus Christ in the next few chapters, Romans 6, um, 7, and 8. The scripture passage that we're looking at today in Romans 5 not only summarizes the first four chapters of Romans, but it also lays a foundation uh, for Paul's teachings in the next three chapters. It's a powerful passage, but I need to warn you, it is one of the most difficult passages to understand in Romans, if not in the entire New Testament. And so if you're able, I'm gonna invite you to stand and to join me in reading uh, our scripture text for today. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so did you understand all that? (laughs) Now, I just want to say as a church, we're committed to teaching not just the easy and the appealing passages. We're committed to teaching through the Bible, and that includes some of the more difficult passages and sometimes unpopular passages. But we need to understand the whole counsel of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so would you join me just in praying that God would help us now to understand. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word and its instruction for life. And Lord, every once in a while, we come across a passage that is difficult to understand, at least at first reading. And we ask, Lord, that you would increase our understanding by your Spirit. And Lord, that you would You would just uh, open our eyes and our heart to what you want to say to us. And then, Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond in whatever way you're asking us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in Romans chapter 5, we've been learning that one mark of a true Christian is that they have a joyful spirit. Philippians 4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And as, again, I say, rejoice. Now, now, remember, joy is not happiness. Happiness is based on one's circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is based not on the circumstances of life, but on the certainties of life. Joy comes to those who have a deep, settled confidence that God is in control, that He has our best interests at heart in all things, and that He can be trusted, even when circumstances in my life seem to convey the opposite. Paul says... Christians have many reasons to rejoice or to boast or to glory in Christ. First of all, in verse 1 and 2, we can rejoice in God's gift of justification. Jesus came to save us from our sins and to set us free to live in victory in this life, but also to make a way for us to be with him forever in heaven in the next life and that is definitely something to rejoice in secondly verse 3 says we can glory or we can rejoice in God's gift of suffering now it just seems totally counterintuitive uh, to rejoice in our suffering or in our hardships and yet what Paul's really getting at here is that if we trust the Lord and we surrender our lives to him, God may allow hardships to come our way in order to transform us and our character into the image of his son Jesus. And when we begin to see how God is using the storms of our lives to change us and to become more like Jesus, we will rejoice even in the midst of these troubles and hardships. And then, thirdly, in verse 12 to 21, Paul teaches we can rejoice in God's gift of reconciliation. Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins. He came to adopt us into his family, to be our friend, and to begin to live his life through us. And that's what Paul is addressing here in the the passage that we just read together. He describes and he compares two family heritages. The family of Adam and the family of Christ. And which family we belong to has huge implications for us in this life. It also has huge implications in terms of uh, joy and peace in our lives. Now by the way, the family of Adam... Is really the family of Adam and Eve. But for reasons that are unclear, Paul focuses just on Adam and the family of Adam, and so I will do likewise in this message. Now in the last sentence of verse 14, Paul writes that Adam is, quote, a pattern of the one to come. And what he means by that is they have that, that Adam and Jesus have one thing in common. And that is at one point in time, they both stepped into the spotlight, as it were, and made a key decision that had sweeping consequences for the human race. Verse 18 describes it well. Consequently, Just as one trespass, the trespass of Adam, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, that of Jesus Christ, resulted in justification and life for all people. Now Adam was the first person that God created, and the Bible says he walked with God. It says he lived in a paradise. He was told by God that he could eat of any tree in the garden except for one, and he was warned of the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit. And there in the Garden of Eden, Adam stepped on the stage, as it were, and the spotlight was on him. And in Genesis 3, 6, we read that Adam and his wife Eve ate the fruit that God told them not to. Adam blew it. And quite frankly, if I'm honest, I'm just a bit disappointed in him. I mean, we've all sinned, okay? So we need to be careful not to get too self righteous at this point. But Adam had some real advantages over us. I mean, he didn't have any parents to argue with, no pollution, no taxes, no mother in law to contend with. I mean, he really should have done better, don't you think? But seriously, God created Adam and Eve with a disposition toward evil, with no disposition toward evil. And yet in some mysterious way, they still chose to sin. And when they sinned, there was a cataclysmic ripple effect. Their relationship with God and with each other was fractured. Evil entered the cosmos, resulting in a broken world that's now filled with suffering and division and death and even natural disasters. Now this was never God's original plan for his creation. This all happened because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and sin. Now, contrast that with Jesus Christ, who interestingly also stepped on the world stage, as it were, in a garden. Not the Garden of Eden, But the garden of Gethsemane and he's kneeling and he's praying and all the spotlights of history are on him would he or would he not follow the call of God the Father and become the sin sacrifice for the world and Jesus said my father if it is possible may this cup be taken from me his humanity was very evident in this part of the prayer. And yet he said, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus' historic decision was one of obedience to God and made it possible for everything to be made right again. Now, church, these decisions had huge implications for humanity, including, as I just mentioned, that we now live in a broken world. But here in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul drills down even deeper to expose the ripple effect of Adam's sin on each of us. First of all, as a result of Adam's disobedience, Paul says in verse 12, sin entered the world. Adam's sin was passed on to all future generations, which means that we're all born with a sin nature. Now some people's worldview They simply do not accept that we are sinners or that we are born with a sin nature. Now, even though you may not like the word sin, you have to admit that deep down inside, something isn't right within us. Atheist and Oxford University professor Richard Dawkins, he says our problem is selfishness. In his first book called The Selfish Gene, he writes this, The primary human drive is not the preservation of the species, but the preservation of self. We are driven by self-interest. Even altruistic behavior, that is, doing good things for other people, may have its roots in self-interest. Even though Dawkins rejects God and rejects the Bible, What he describes here as selfishness is really what the Bible refers to as sin and the sinful nature of man. Now some people admit there are sinful people on the planet who murder, who abuse, who molest, but they believe that these people are an anomaly. From their perspective, most people are good people who occasionally do bad things. Well, the Bible says, not true. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. We're not good people who occasionally do bad things. No, if we're honest, we would have to acknowledge that we're prideful, self-centered people who occasionally do good things. Oh, make no mistake, we want to be good. For example, those of you who are married, you stood at the altar of a church or perhaps on a beach somewhere, and before all of your friends, you said, I promise to be the greatest husband or the greatest wife ever. That's where all marriages start, you know. It's called the romantic phase. It usually lasts about a week or two. (laughs) Or in exceptional cases, a year or two. But then, you come to the next phase. It's called reality. And reality hits when the person that you thought could do no wrong has suddenly turned into someone you hardly know. Someone who now, from your perspective, seems incapable of doing anything right. When the reality phase hits in marriage, the couple are more than ready to acknowledge that there is sin in the world, and at least one sinner in the marriage. (laughs) You see, we're sinners by nature. We've all seen this in our lives. Even though we know sin will hurt us, or perhaps someone that we love, and that we're probably gonna regret it after the fact, we often want to sin anyways. We often want to just get our anger out and slander someone. You know, we, we want to, um, uh, you know, have, hold a grudge against someone. Uh, we want to lust. We want to envy. Because as one person admitted, there is something inside of me that's so strong and so powerful, it drives me past common sense and my morals and convictions. So tell me, what is that? I mean, just pause for a moment and ask yourself, what is that within us that entices us, that pulls us to sin? Well, the Bible says it's our sin nature. It's pride. It's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. Sin is a part of our nature. And here in verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, that's the first implication of Adam's sin. His sin was passed down to us, leaving us with a sinful nature, an inclination to sin. Now you say, well, wait a minute. That's not fair. I mean, I wasn't there to decide, so why do I need to pay for Adam's sin? Now we could give a number of explanations, but let's not forget that we have all sinned, and if God had put each of us in Adam's place, we would have done the same thing. But in addition to that, one of the truths of life is that the decisions that we make in life affect not only us, but those who come behind us. Andy Parks, he tells the story of a friend of his who for years had a nursery for crack babies. A crack baby is a baby who is born to a mom who is addicted to crack. And when they're born, they're addicted to crack as well. And so to Andy, uh, she, she said to Andy, these babies never stop crying, in some cases for weeks. They just cry and cry, all of that crack out of their systems. And there are women that she recruited who would just hold these crying babies for hours while their mothers were out on the street trying to make a living. Now when we hear this, it breaks our hearts, you see, because something inside of us says it's not fair for innocent babies to suffer like this for the decisions that their mother made. But you see, while they were in their mother's womb, as their mother went, so went the child. And folks, the same is true for us. Because we are born in Adam's family, we are born with a sin nature before we even commit our first sin. That's the first implication of Adam's sin. Sin entered the world and infected us all. A second implication of Adam's disobedience is that death entered the world. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. The term death here is referring to two things. First, it's referring to physical death. The moment a child is born, that child is already beginning to die. This is universal, and unless Jesus comes back first, we're all going to get older, and we're all going to eventually die. Secondly, the death talked about here also refers to spiritual death. This is much more serious than physical death. Spiritual death has eternal ramifications. When Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship with God died. And this was passed on to all of their descendants, the entire human race, which means every person is born spiritually dead or spiritually separated from God. And because we are born spiritually dead, death reigns. Look at verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. And what this means is that death reigns in Adam's family. There's death in relationships. There's death of dreams, death of dignity and honor, the death of purpose. People in Adam's family often go through life with a sense of futility and despair because without God, nothing makes much sense. Solomon described it as a chasing after the wind. And so we are sinners by nature because we are sons and daughters of Adam and, we're all, and we also die because we are sons and daughters of Adam. Now please note, It's important to point out that death doesn't come to us necessarily because of our individual sin. Of course, some people die because of their own sinful actions. Like, for example, a person who dies in a car accident as a result of drinking too much and then getting behind the wheel and driving. But in verse 13 and 14, Paul teaches that as a matter of principle, we die because Adam's sin brought death into the world. I mean, look at it this way. If we always and only died because of our own sin, then how do you explain the death of a child who hasn't sinned at all? Whether a child or a youth or an adult, Paul says we die because of Adam and Eve's sin, not because of our sins. In fact, writes Paul, people in ancient times They died even before God introduced the law or the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 13. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is not law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Paul's argument here is simply this before God gave the Ten Commandments, there was already sin in the world. Because the law hadn't been given yet, people didn't know exactly how they were sinning, and so God didn't hold them accountable for their specific sins, but we know they were sinning primarily because people died long before the law or the Ten Commandments was given at the time of Moses. They died because of Adam's sin, and not their own. Now, by the way, I just want you to look down at verse 20, where it says this, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, is Paul saying here that the Ten Commandments and the law cause people to sin more? Not at all. It means the Ten Commandments made them more aware of their sin, defined their sin more, and as a result, their need for God and His grace. The more we sin and fall further and further away from God, the more we realize we can't fix ourselves and we need more of the grace of Christ, the only one, who can save us from our sins. And so the Ten Commandments prove that we're sinners but even without them we know we're sinners because of the sentence of death that came as a consequence of Adam's disobedience. The fact is we're all aging and we're slowly headed for death and that reminds us that we're living in a broken world and that we are part of Adam's family. Well, you say, isn't this wonderful? What a wonderful sermon, Pastor Henry. Thank you for for letting me know that I'm a sinner, that I'm getting old, and that I'm dying and part of Adam's family. I can hardly stand it. Anything else you want to say to kind of cheer me up today? Well, actually, I do. I said earlier in this series in Romans Sometimes the only way we can appreciate the good news of what Jesus did for us is when we first face the harsh reality of the bad news that we face without Jesus. Paul declares the good news this way in Romans 5 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners in that hopeless condition, Christ died for us. While Adam and Eve sinned and blew it for the human race, Jesus gave us the gift of his death on the cross, making a way for us to be saved from all of the consequences of Adam's sin. You see, to be in Adam's family, all you have to do is to be born physically, but to gain entrance into Christ's family, you must be born again, spiritually. Jesus' death provided a way for that to happen. But as verse 17 clearly indicates, we must receive this gift by faith. So let's look at what Jesus did to make it possible for us to be born again into his family. First, verse 16 says, whereas Adam's sin." resulted in us being corrupted by sin, and the object of God's wrath and judgment, Christ's death made a way for us to be justified through our faith in Him. He, Jesus, paid for our debt on the cross. He paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Secondly, not only did Christ graciously wash away our sins, but he made us spiritually alive. Verse 17 tells us, whereas Adam's sin resulted in death reigning, Christ's death resulted in the provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reigning in life. You see, when we were in Adam, or when we are in Adam, we are ruled by death. And where death reigns, there is no life. Death is emptiness. It is loneliness, misery, boredom, purposelessness, bitterness, anger, selfishness, rudeness, out-of-control lust. That is what death is, and what those who are part of God's family face without Christ. Jesus, on the other hand, breathes life into our lives and our relationships. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over all that he had made. When Satan came to tempt them in the form of a certain, they had the authority to throw him out of the Garden of Eden. They had that kind of authority over creation, but they lost it when they sought to be independent disobeyed God and ate of that apple. But now, through Christ, we can be restored to our rightful place as co-regents under God. He has given us His life and His authority and the power of sin has been broken in our lives, which means we need no longer be defeated by the things we face in life, but we're able to reign over sin and all of the pressures and the troubles in life. Our spirit can be alive and joyful even in the midst of the heartaches and the pressures of life. Now some of you are thinking, well if that's true pastor, then I guess I must not be a Christian. Because, still, because sin still seems to have control over me. I've read the verses, I've prayed the prayer, I'm telling you, Sin is still alive in me. Well, I just want to remind you, this particular passage we're looking at today is an introduction. We're going to be talking about this a lot more as we go through chapters 6, 7, and 8. And you won't want to miss it. What Paul wants us to understand in this passage and at this point is that you now belong to a new family in Jesus Christ your identity has changed. You are now, uh, you now have a new Lord and King who gives you a new perspective of life, a new hope for the future, a new attitude and purpose in life. And get this, a new authority to say no to sin until no longer be a slave to sin. Erwin Lutzer explains it this way. He says, let's suppose that you're in an apartment complex and the landlord is very difficult to get along with. Let's suppose this landlord regularly barges into your apartment when you're not there. He breaks things and he scatters everything around and then he sends you a bill accusing you for not looking after the place. Let's say he constantly deceives you, makes all kinds of promises, That he doesn't fulfill. On top of that, let's say he raises the rent so high that he knows you can't repay it. So you'll have to borrow what you owe from him and eventually you become hopelessly indebted to him to the point of being his slave. Not a wonderful state to be in. But you see, that's exactly where Satan wants us to be. But then one day, the entire apartment complex is sold and is now under new ownership. And the new owner comes to you and says, I want you to know that your indebtedness has been taken care of and your rent is paid up for good because I've paid it. I want us to be friends. And I want you to know that my desire is to help you be all that God made you to be. Well, you're excited beyond words when you hear that. You, you can't believe this. It just seems too good to be true. But while you're rejoicing, your old landlord barges into your apartment waving all kinds of papers in your face which he purports are legal documents and he's saying things like you still owe me big time you'd better pay up or else now you can do one of two things you can either tell him to leave because you know he's lying remember the truth sets you free said Jesus or you can continue to be his slave and give in and keep paying the bills that have already been paid by your new owner. Now folks you see that is a picture of how some Christians live. They are now in Jesus' family and yet they keep paying the bills to Adam's family. They keep being slaves to their former landlord and often they don't even know it's no longer necessary. You know, it kind of reminds me of what happened in Jamaica many years ago when the slave trade ended there. The news didn't get out to some of the remote parts of the country and and so some people just continued to be slaves because they didn't know the truth, that they were free. And that is the situation for some Christians today And so the old landlord comes along and he knocks on the door of their lives and he says, you have to pay for this bill called worry or fear. And instead of saying, no, I'm under new ownership in Jesus Christ, he's taken care of all those bills, he set me free, they just go ahead and they pay the bill, convinced that there is no way they can be set free from worry or from fear. Or maybe the old landlord comes along, hands them a bill called Regret. Many people just say, you know, they're just convinced there's no way that they can be released of their regret, and so they pay the bill. You know, church, make no mistake. One thing that Satan wants you to believe is that accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior and becoming part of his family has not changed things very much. That's what he wants you to believe, But make no mistake, the Bible has an entirely different message. It says, when you are in Christ, everything is new. Everything. The old allegiances have been broken. And all of your debts have been fully paid in Christ. In Christ, you now have a new family, a new authority, a new heritage, and you don't have to listen or give in to your old landlord anymore despite his threats and his whining. In fact, Satan was declawed and he was detoothed on the cross. And all he can do now is roar and gum us a little bit. The only way he can harm us is through deception, through lies and unfounded fears that we choose to believe and act on.